a man named Martin Luther is uh, prominent near the, the end of the month as one who nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door. Uh, unfortunately, that door burnt in a fire. Uh, they did replicate it in steel or, or iron now with the 95 Theses actually imprinted, um, um, not imprinted, but it, it's kind of engraved, but it's a raised, more embossing type thing in iron. It's not going to go away, and it's there. But through the course of, of the challenge uh, that Luther identified the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, when we said Holy Apostolic Catholic Church, we used little c. That mean, that's, a, that's a good Greek word that simply means a cosmological gathering of the saints. Okay? The abuses of the Roman Catholic Church Luther identified he wanted to have a conversation and talk about that we're, we're saved, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we get that teaching from the Word of God alone, not the traditions of men, and we want to give glory to God alone. Those are the kinds of things that came out of his teaching. Uh, he didn't summarize it quite that nicely. He's Martin Luther, of course. And... Um, but he, he is known, known at least sanctified legend of standing before uh, the, the trial uh, and it was at Worms, is that right? At Worms? Doctor, right? Was Luther standing at, at the Diet of Worms when he supposedly said, here I stand, I can do no other. And he held a Bible in his hand standing on the promises of God that this is where he would get his doctrine and from nowhere else. He took a stand. And we know this in our own nomenclature, in our own thinking, I'm going to take a stand for something. And we know the Sunday school song, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And that's indeed the kind of people that, that I desire us as Grace Bible Church to be. Here's an example of Mordecai taking a stand, or at least not bowing. Okay, um, reminds me of, of the other Sunday school song, wouldn't bend, wouldn't bow, wouldn't burn. Three other guys in the book of Daniel, about a, oh, 50 years plus, maybe uh, before this, this event happened, likely, likely, likely more than well, close to 100 years before this. I want to walk through this in three significant movements, but recognize the time signature that's here. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says that it's the first month of Nisan and the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, the twelfth year. When we began this story in chapter 1, verse 3, it was the third year of King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. The third year, now it's the twelfth year. Nine years have transpired since the beginning of the story. Has it felt long to you? It has to me. It, Nine years have gone by. It's, it's been nine years since Vashti has been banished. And it's, it's about five years now since Esther was coronated as queen. Somewhere in between there, Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot. We don't know exactly when and where. Uh, we don't know the, the sequence. We know the sequence of events. We don't know how spread apart they are. But as we learned from that, uh, narrative in chapter 2 that Mordecai is a hero and we're expecting because Persian kings really liked to give glory and honor 
to people who glorified the king with great rewards. We're expecting Mordecai to be promoted or something, and what we're confronted with is another guy is promoted. Mordecai got passed over, passed up for promotion, and um, Haman is the one who's promoted in chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Well, let's, let's label this, this section, this first paragraph, an unbending conviction. I think you can get the idea that Mordecai is one who wouldn't bend, he wouldn't bow and pay homage to Haman, the second in command of the entire empire. The word throne is used. Haman's placed on a throne. The word throne's used only three times in the whole Esther narrative. The other two times it specifically says the royal throne of Ahasuerus. And now Haman is upon a throne, reigning, ruling, uh, as if he may as well be the king himself. So chapter 3, verse 1, Haman uh, is, is elevated. Verse 2 says, uh, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded everybody to do so. Now, I, I get the sense from this that Haman wasn't necessarily a likable fella. The, he didn't have the populace uh, vote, so to speak. He, the king actually enforced, commanded the people to pay him respect. Now, you know you don't have it when they need to command it. And this is the same concept that was here when Memucan in chapter 1 was worried about his wife in particular, I'm reading into this story, responding like Vashti did to the king. And he says, king, you need a decree that all the women are supposed to obey their husbands in their home. Like, how do you, what? Well, you get an idea, one of the oppressiveness of the society and the culture. And we recognize that it wasn't only against women, it was against everyone in the whole kingdom, the whole society. Even young boys, 500 a year, were uh, inscripted into the service of the king as eunuchs, made to be eunuchs. So this was just oppressive all the way around. Well, this is the same kind of decree. And everyone's just kind of going along with it except Mordecai. Now, actually, Mordecai was presented as a very noble and honorable man, but he wouldn't bow to Haman, and he resists the personage of Haman, and he defies the king's command, like Vashti defied the king's command. And we're wondering, we thought Mordecai was, was a royalist, and now he's disobeying the king's command. What, what kind of guy is he? Is he a loyal fellow or not? It's always been a little difficult, even in the first two chapters, to sort through uh, his motivations. But here's a clue as to why Mordecai is defiant, unbending. And it's in the name that's given here. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadipha. The Agagite. Now, it's not some kind of stone or rock or marble. The Agagite. Huh. And then, remember who Mordecai is. Mordecai is of the line and son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
the, the tribe from which the first king of Israel, King Saul, descended. Mordecai is within the royal family of some way. Hmm. And now you have this going around in your mind. What is the family feud that's happening here? Haman the Agagite is the son of Hamaditha. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites in, in Exodus chapter 17 were the very first tribe of the Canaanite area to resist Israel entering the land and not only resisted them entering, but ambushed them from behind, picking off the loiters as they're going on. The marauders. They're the first people to resist Israel and to actually wage war against Israel. And many years after that ambush, the Lord says to King Saul, I want you to, to do an end with the Amalekites once and for all time. And Saul did not do that. He saved Agag in reserve. He saved some of the, some of the plunder. And Samuel, the prophet, shows up and says, Saul, you didn't obey the word of God. You didn't do your duty to its full extent. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So Samuel is a bit heated at this point. And it's at this point that then God, through Samuel, takes the kingdom of Israel away from King Saul because he disregarded the word of God. You wonder what we miss out on in life when we disregard the word of God, the plans and purposes that he has. What do we miss when we disobey? Well, the kingdom's pulled away from Saul and going to be given to another, which would be David. Samuel himself, it's recorded, he's the one that killed King Agag personally. And it's really, this would be rated R. The, the word is he hacked Agag to pieces. Hacked him to pieces. Now, apparently, some of them yet of the house of Agag escaped. For a little bit later on in the life of, da of, of David, um, the Amalekites, as band of marauders, stole David's two wives, kidnapped them, and plundered uh, his, his camp while he was out on another mission. And David goes and, and defeats them, gets his family back and so forth, but a few of them still escaped and dwelt in another area of the land. And so this thing that had to, was supposed to have been accomplished, complete, done in the eyes of God is prolonged, lingering with after effects. So one, one of these principles is that the sins of the people before us might be our forefathers, our ancestors. It could, be, it could be just someone within the community ahead of us 
Those sins may have an impact on our life circumstances today because Saul was disobedient. Now we have this situation, this circumstance between Haman and Mordecai. At least awkward, but it's awful. Now, you're wondering, how would God a loving, compassionate God decide to wipe out an entire race like the Amalekites. Well, here's here's a sample. Now, we'll we'll come to this as we go further in the book of Esther because there's going to be real warfare uh, that ensues because of this interpersonal relationship that goes bad. Two men can't get along and there's war. Sounds like real life, doesn't it? It is real life. This is more real than anything else. And it's historical. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 18, here the Lord says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, that is, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. This is not a racial issue. This is not an ethnic issue. This is not genocide. It's not ethnic cleansing. For in the Bible, you will never find a place that God turns away anyone, anyone of any nationality, of any race, of any ethnicity, if they come to him in faith and repentance. He never turns any of them away. Think of Rahab in Jericho. She's the only one. She had heard, she had heard of how God went before Israel. She had heard of the plagues, and not only her, the city had heard what God had done to save Israel, and still they would not repent. It's this lack of repentance. It's this lack of faith, this lack of the fear of the Lord that brings judgment on any people and on any person. This is why we go with the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus took on that wrath of God. Jesus bore the price for our sin. Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve so that we don't need to be the Amaleks, the Hamans. We're saved, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh bore our sin on the cross, was raised on the third day for our forgiveness of sins and our fellowship restored with God. This good news needs to go to all the peoples of the world so that they can have this opportunity to respond with faith and repentance and not end up like an Amalek and an entire people group. That's just a taste of this whole situation. But now back to Esther, a descendant of Agag sits on the throne, a man who hates God, a man who hates God's people, a man who hates God's king. This man is Antichrist. He hates the line through which the Messiah of all the earth would come. He is Antichrist. 
Amalek represents all the world powers that oppose God. Mordecai apparently believes the promises of God to his covenant people. God said, there's going to be tension now from generation to generation. Here it is. And Mordecai has a decision to make. Will I bow and just go along with this? Or will I take a lesson from my forefathers and do before God what is right and take a stand? We've wondered why Mordecai would tell Esther not to reveal her ethnicity. We're still wondering that question, but now we know at least Mordecai wasn't hiding. Mordecai did reveal his ethnicity. He's known. And his co-workers are like, they're, they're prodding the whole situation. You see this? They're prodding the whole situation. Verse 4, they spoke to Mordecai day after day, and he, and he wouldn't listen to them. No, I'm not going to bow. I will continue to stand. He wouldn't listen to them, and so they told Haman. So even, even whatever it is that Haman is doing in defiance, he's not doing it in Haman's face. Haman doesn't even know until Mordecai's co-workers tell Haman, hey, you know, Haman's not bowing when you go by the gate. Did you notice that? What? So when, when we make a stand, we don't have to be fist in the air and defiantly letting everybody know we're being defiant. We simply and quietly go about our business doing the right thing the right way at the right time. Now, when we do, it's going to get rough. But we need to stand. And this is true in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on then to say, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything in your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Stand firm. Simply standing firm. With one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel reveals to those watching of their destruction apart from Christ and of the glorious salvation that we as God's people enjoy. Well, the second paragraph, verses 7 to 11, we'll call this an undeniable distinction. The problem here with Haman is power-mongering. If the first problem that he had was positional peevishness, he needs to be respected. He has to be respected. Well, verses 7 to 11 go on to say the first month of Nisan, the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the poor, that is the lots. He's superstitious. Haman is superstitious. And you, you get, get this. 
They cast it month after month, well, day after day. And they cast it month after month, all the way until the 12th month. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they don't keep the king's laws. Now, so far, all we know from the narrative, it's only Mordecai that's the big deal, not, not bowing. And it's only the one command. He's not bowing to Haman. He's an obedient, good citizen. But these peevish leaders will magnify one aspect and then broaden it to this prejudicial basis. Well, in verse 5, uh, it says that when, when Haman heard about this, he was filled with fury. Haman's name is Haman, and the word fury there in verse 5 is Haman. Haman, 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 Haman. There's a word play. You get it? You hear it? In other words, fury. So when, when we're first introduced to Haman, and we, we know our Persian real well, our Akkadian, and we're thinking, huh, his name means fury. I wonder if that's a characteristic of his personality. Yeah, it is. Be careful what you name your children. So he goes on and says, they're different. They're different. The biggest, the biggest fear in the world isn't the public speaking. It's the fear of what's different. And that's what's led to a lot of the problems in society. Different people, different cultures, different values, different laws. And it leads to war. God's people, and in this sense, God's covenant people, Israel, God's ethnic national Israel, had a whole different law code. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the law code God gave them to define them as a particular people in a particular place, a specific nation. It's a civil code as well as a religious code. The two were in one. Israel in those ancient days had no separation of church and state. And guess what? When Jesus comes, there will be no separation of church and state. He will be and is already King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will make that manifest on earth, even as it is in heaven. We long for that day. We labor for that day. Now, Mordecai doesn't obey Haman. He doesn't acknowledge Haman. The people of God live distinctively holy lives separate from the rest of the world. Now, remember, Esther and Mordecai are getting along just fine. Nobody, by their can identify them as Jewish by the kind of clothes that they wear, the kind of haircuts that they have. And yet, they still ethically, morally, culturally were distinctive enough to be different from the rest. How about us? Are we distinctive enough, different enough in our culture, that is, in our faith culture, our church culture, 
We're not just counterculture. We are to be an alternative culture in the midst of this society. For, for many years, decades, if, if not a couple hundred, that distinction was kind of blurred in North America and in the United States. The religious ethic, the religious, the, the church culture wasn't significantly different than the state culture. But have you noticed it's a little bit different now? If you haven't, then you're in trouble because it's supposed to be significantly different than the culture of the world. I had a conversation with a, a friend uh, this week and we we're talking about world religions and, and this kind of thing and I said, well, you, you realize what the root word of culture is. You know this, you've heard me say this over and again. But only a few of you are going like this, so I'm going to have to say it again. The root word of culture is cult. Now we get our, our, our words cultivation, culture. We also get our word cultus, that root. A society develops a culture around what they worship. Every society, every culture is religious. Every culture worships something that they value. In America, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the American trinity that our neighbors worship. It better not dare be what we worship. God forbid, because if it is, then we don't need to be here at all. We don't have any purpose, any reason to exist if we have the same worship value as a neighborhood and society around us. We are to be different, distinctive. Those of you that are in the, the First Peter study will know these verses. I'm going to, actually, I don't have them in order. We'll start in chapter 4, go to chapter 1, and then back to chapter 2, 1 Peter. They are surprised when you don't join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. As he who called you is holy, so you be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile. Do we live as if we're in exile? Do we live as if this world is not our home? Knowing you were ransomed from those futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The society, the culture, the neighborhood around you calls evil good and good evil. So when you do good and right, you will be called an evildoer. And they will have tolerance for everyone except you, the good doer, in the eyes of God. Are you sensing that? Are you feeling that? As you shop, as you do business, as you go about your occupation, as you, hopefully not too much, watch or listen to the news. So, not only do the sins affect other people, but the righteousness affects other people. One man did what was right. And now the empire is thrown into chaos. There is a dark world, an enemy force that is working to destroy God's people. Oh. We could point to Jesus who stood against the devil when he was offered the kingdoms of the world. And it led him to the cross. We think about the early church who would not confess Caesar as Lord or Caesar as Savior. But no, rather, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will have salvation. Not from Rome, not from Caesar, not from the emperor, not from the state. Jesus only. You see, the emperor wanted people to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar at least once a year and say, Hail Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is salvation. And the Christians realized, can't do that. And that's treason. And it's a capital crime. And they were put to death. There were no giant protests, no rallies. They just quietly did or didn't do what they were supposed to do before the Lord. And it got them in trouble. Well, Xerxes gives Haman his ring. Total, absolute authority within the whole kingdom. And verse 12 goes on to, to show what Haman did with all of this. This, this absolute power, this maniacal need for power leads to a public perplexity. The, the whole city is in chaos. The scribes are summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The edict goes out and he commands them, write this down, go to all the 127 provinces, send out the Pony Express, get them going, kill them all. Kill them all, destroy them all. Kill, annihilate. It's like, it's like Doctor Who and the Daleks. Exterminate, exterminate, you... Um, just a handful. Kill them all. This blend of the need for respect and total authority under a maniacal mind and a depraved heart leads to oppression. Oppression. 
And, there's, and yet there's a bit of comic relief in here. I don't think we necessarily get it, but it's repeated now for the second time how the Pony Express goes to all 127 of the provinces. Like, as if they're so efficient, so efficient, get the news out. But we know the backstory. The government was not that efficient. Micah told me last week, after he said, I got an illustration for, for you. He said, the Wall Street Journal gave a report. The IRS had this automated system to process your tax papers. It, instead of opening the un, and unfolding it, it was cutting them in half. So now they had to hire even more people to tape them back together. I take his word for it. I didn't actually go to the Wall Street Journal and look it up. I trust him. I shouldn't have named his name because now we're going to all <laughs> check up. It's my fault. Okay, we've seen in the administration of Ahasuerus how the, the obvious things he cannot see. He's just so blind. There is a sense in which Big Brother doesn't know as much as we think. And a lot of the, a lot of the plots uh, we fear for nothing. But, but, there are plots. Here's one. There are plots. But it's not that it's so well orchestrated by the government. It's these specific individuals who usurp the authority, who are able to manipulate the king. This is now the third time the king's been manipulated by his emotions, by the people around him, getting what the people around him want, not what he should be doing. Now, he got his own sin of abdication. And these other people got their sin of authoritarianism and oppression. And we still see that today. It's the, it's the inconsistencies and the arbitrariness that we really should be afraid of. And such is the administration here. And amongst the details of Haman taking the throne and the royal command to bow down to him and this edict of genocide and the frivolity then at the end of Haman and Ahasuerus sitting down to drink. Like, what? The city is thrown into confusion. Does this not remind you of Herod and Pilate who became good friends the day that they both decided to convict Jesus, an innocent man, guilty? Enemies within the world will conspire together against God and against God's people. But know this. We, we, we ought to be a people with a, an unhurried devotion. So Haman in his superstition, taking the Purim, they're, like, they're kind of like dice, the lots, and they're casting the lots. And he wants, the, he wants the best day before the gods to exterminate the Jews, and Mordecai especially. And, and he uses bribery. I mean, all that silver, was it 10,000 10, talents of silver? That's like, that's like over three tons of silver. That's like two-thirds of their annual IRS revenue for the year. Haman, Haman says he's going to contribute that to the uh, coffers. He's expecting he's going to get more than that back when he plunders the Jews. He's throwing the die. He wants the most advantageous time in month, day after day. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day 30, next month. 
January, Fe I can't, I won't do the Nissan months, Nissan and our January, February, March, come on, April, May, June, okay, we're halfway through, July, August, September, come on, October, November, keep rolling, December, December 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 30, 31, like it's the last month of the year. They, they, the Persians would cast the lots to get important dates for, on the calendar for the year. We ought to do something a little bit more organized than that for the church calendar. But nonetheless, they, they're throwing lots. They're throwing lots uh, to figure out what the, the good important days for the, the holidays and, and undertakings for the, for the government and for the empire. And, and he keeps throwing the lots. Again and again, come on, again and again. Nope, not that day, not that day, not that month, not that day, not that month. The last month of the day, it's the first, it's the first month now. A whole year. Do you, do you suppose that's a coincidence? Do you suppose that's by chance? No. In Proverbs uh, chapter 16 and verse 33, we're told by the sage, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, this is not, this is not a proof text to go gambling. No. No. That is abusing the sovereignty of God. But behind the machinations of even a man like Haman, God is orchestrating the events, and he gives, no, not just time for the Pony Express to get out to all the, all, the, all the regions, but he gives time for the people of God to be ready, to be ready for the last day. Oh, the patience and loving kindness of God for his people to provide and to protect. But in the, in, in the, in the confusion and in the clouds of chaos, we, we so forget that God governs, yes, even evil. He's not the maker of evil, he's not the originator of evil, but he, he can take what evil people do and bend it and turn it around for his good purpose. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for his good, for those who keep his commandments and love him. Do you fear the Lord? When you face those clouds of confusion tomorrow, Monday morning, and the chaos that is in the world and in your place of employment, know that you have a God whose hand is behind this orchestrating and his timing is perfect. I know you can't see it now, I can't see it now, but we see this historical testimony. God is good to his people, and he'll work it for good. You can trust, you can rest in God and await the solutions that he has already planned and put together and will implement at his perfect time. The most important one is the sending of his son. And the apostle says, at just the right moment, 
God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son to be born and to die for the sins of the world. That's Paul in Galatians. Now, let's rest. God in heaven, we do come. We thank you for this message uh, of encouragement and promise. And we ask, Lord, you would apply it to our hearts even now as we would approach the table and remember the sending of your Son and the extent of your love for us in his sacrifice. Amen.